This morning I'd like to talk about pride. And the title is <clears throat> To Take Pride Only in Christ Crucified. I'm talking about pride in the sense of what we are proud of. What makes us feel superior or special or righteous. We all like to boast. We all like to boast about something. We all like to feel that there's something that makes us special, that helps us to stand with our heads high. Naturally, we all take pride in one thing or another. That's just how we are. We have to take pride in something. The question is, what are we taking pride in? What are we boasting about? I know one person who takes pride in climbing mountains. He would not only climb a mountain that <clears throat> I probably wouldn't get to the top of, <laughs> but he would climb all the peaks that are around maybe in the south of England or in the, the, peak, the, the Lake District or in some of the, the areas where there's lots of hills or mountains. But not only that, he would do it within a week. <laughs> he would be on seven peaks in a week. And... Sometimes it's other things, but sometimes you can just tell that when people feel they've got a kind of a pride and they may be far removed from the mountains or whatever it is that they take pride in. But when they're walking down the street, there's this sense of I'm special because, well, they don't really, they don't know. If only they knew what I was like, what I'm able to do, they would say I'm special. I'm taking pride in something, even when people don't realize there can be an attitude of pride that if only they knew. People take pride in all kinds of things. It can be somebody who's just a little bit eccentric. They started having a hobby, collecting things, and then it became a little bit strange. And then they became so eccentric that they became a, almost a celebrity figure in the community. And their identity almost is tied up with what they are proud of, whether it's Christmas lights all over the house and the garden at, at Christmas time, much more than anybody else, or whatever it is, their career, their hairstyle, their car, their tattoos, their achievements, um, what they eat, their fitness regime, their social background, whatever it is, people take pride in one thing or another. And many take pride in believing that they are right about everything. Pride in themselves. They have a kind of a, an attitude that nobody understands the world other than me. They may be conspiracy theorists, or they may just be people who are so self-absorbed that no one is right except them. They're just proud of themselves. Self-sufficient. And even in Christian circles, we can take pride in various things too. It's very common for Christians to be proud of their local church or their denomination. Our denomination is better than other ones or our church is better than others. Some of our preachers have gone on to be famous authors or speak in conferences around the world or our church building has been around since 18 whatever or, or others may say, well, we go right back, back to St. Peter. So. 
we might, we might be proud of the fact that, well, we're from West Belfast, and not everybody can say that. <laughs> you know, there's all kinds of subtle ways in which we can be proud. We might think that our theological camp that we are from, our theology is better than others. You know, we can point at the errors or the problems in others, other theological positions, but not really realize that maybe there's weaknesses in our own as well. Those who are reformed can look down on those who are charismatic, believe we have the truth, but we're more theological, more academic than them. But not realize that sometimes that can lead to a sort of a, a book in your head type of approach where it's all about learning, it's all about theology, but we lose the heart sometimes. Charismatics look down on, on others who, and say, well, we've got the spirit. And we have the life, we have the emotions. I think it's a balance we need between the heart and the head, not going all over one way or letting the pendulum swing to the other. Some boast in their, their evangelism or their mission trips overseas or their charity work or their, their social connections or their community connections. The list goes on and on. We can be proud in so many different things, not just as individuals, but as, as churches, as Christians as well. Even within church, there can be a kind of a, a pride that can be elitist. Even within a local church, there can be sort of a, an inner circle of people that, that sort of forms, because we have a tendency to want to know more, to be more in with the in crowd or, or whatever it is. And that's sin. That was wanting to know something people didn't know at the very start. That was the original sin. Sometimes church fellowship, we need to be on our guard that we're not actually falling into that trap of having layers where people have to you know, they're, they're not really part of things until they get into the inner circle. We can end up too easily in, in churches where you have a, a two-tier system of feeling in or in the church or not really quite connected. A sort of a, a clique, even over tea and coffee. Or it can be other things like, well, the real Christians speak in tongues. And even in Pentecostal churches, there's this pressure where not everyone speaks in tongues, but the real ones do, you know, that kind of elitism. We need to be careful in lots of different ways that we don't take pride in something that actually sets us apart, that separates us from others, that we don't take pride in something which is sinful, which is anything other than Christ. It's into this type of situation that Paul wrote to the Corinthians at the end of chapter one. Therefore, as the scriptures say, if you want to boast, boast only about the Lord. Pride in anything other than who we are in Christ or what he has done in and through us is worldly pride. And it leads to all kinds of wrong thinking and behavior. 
And as Paul begins to, to address this problem, in preparing his listeners, his hearers, for what he is going to say in chapter 3 onwards, dealing with specific issues that are wrong in the church, he first feels that he has to set, he has to set the, the stage correctly. He has to address an underlying issue. And that is to deal with what, what is underlying their source of pride. And he says, he starts off by saying that he didn't come with lofty words nor with impressive wisdom. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 1. Two things there. He didn't come with impressive words, lofty words, and he didn't come with impressive wisdom. Worldly words and worldly wisdom. Instead, he came knowing Christ crucified. So the first thing is that we oughtn't to have pride in impressive talk. The first of those things is that in Corinth, in general, as one writer notes, stylistic virtuosity won audience approval. In contrast, Paul's conscious choice of a simple and unaffected style drew no attention to itself. People wanted to hear people who could speak and who were impressive and who were really very, very, wor very worldly impressive. There's some people who have the gift of, of giving a good speech. They can capture you. They've got the voice. They've got the charisma. It doesn't matter what they're talking about. It's, it's, they can just capture your attention. And that's what the people in Corinth really cherished. But Paul says, that's not how I came. He wasn't impressive. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, we read, he's, he's addressing this point where he's, he, he says that some say Paul's letters are demanding and forceful, but in person he is weak and his speeches are worthless. He's admitting that, yeah, in person, I'm not that impressive compared to other people. He might have been a little bit shorter than usual. The thorn in the flesh, some people think, might even have been a stutter. We don't know. One writer even notes that if we draw on the narratives in Acts, the temporary absence of Paul's co-worker Silas and Timothy at this point added a psychological dimension of loneliness or isolation which made his fear and trembling all the more when he first went to Corinth. He was isolated. He felt his own weakness. He wasn't the impressive kind of person that they were used to looking towards. But the power of his message was in his message, not, not in his words. It was in the power of God. Later on, he says, when struggling with his own weakness, he says that God responded each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So he says, now I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. 
if you're feeling weak and insignificant and unimpressive in anything you're doing for the Lord, well, that's okay. You don't have to be worldly impressive. You don't have to be somebody that people are naturally impressed by. It's even an advantage to be weak and to be aware of your weaknesses because then the Lord can work best. My power works best in weakness. And Paul knew that. He felt that. And yet the church were looking for impressive, worldly strength, worldly impressive people. But Paul didn't want to rely on his words and his eloquence making a difference. He wanted to rely on the, the power of God working through his words. So we ought not to have pride, not only in how we communicate, how we speak, our words, but we also not to not have pride in worldly wisdom. Paul says that when I'm among mature believers, I do not speak with words of wisdom, worldly wisdom, but, but not the kind of wisdom, or I do speak with words of wisdom, but not the kind of wisdom that belongs to this world or to the rulers of this world who are soon forgotten. No, the wisdom we speak of is the mystery of God, his plan that was previously hidden, even though he made it for our ultimate glory before the world began. Instead of operating at a worldly wise level, being impressive at a worldly level, Paul says that he ministered in the wisdom of God. And his point here is that the secret plan of God, the secret wisdom of God, which was actually a very topical point when Paul was around, it was a very topical point for the churches, especially because for hundreds of years, people had assumed that God's word and God's blessings were only associated with the Jews. They hadn't realized that the prophecies of Isaiah and others were that God had already planned to take the blessing to the nations. God started out with a, well, before Abraham, there were just sporadic individuals like Job or Melchizedek who worshipped him. Then God dealt with an individual who became a family, who became a nation. And although it stayed as, as a nation for many years, and people thought, well, that's, that's where his plan has stopped. They didn't realize that God's plan, which he hadn't revealed yet, which was hidden, which is what the word mystery means back then, something that hadn't been revealed yet. He hadn't revealed that his plan was bigger than that. It wasn't going to stop with the Jews. It was going to reach all nations. The secret plan of God, the secret wisdom of God regarding the gospel going to other nations, not just the Jews, was something that earthly rulers weren't aware of. Those who were worldly wise, if they had known who Christ was and what God's plan was for them, they wouldn't have put him on the cross. No, the wisdom we speak of is the mystery of God, his plan that was previously hidden, even though he made it for our ultimate glory before the world began.
but the rulers of this world have not understood it. If they had, they wouldn't have crucified our glorious Lord. So Paul doesn't rely on worldly ways of impressing people or worldly wisdom. And in the point that he's making, he shows that actually those who are worldly wise, they don't have the wisdom that comes from God. Only believers understand the wisdom from God. He supports his conclusion by stating that those who are worldly wise just haven't a clue about God's ways. They're out of the loop when it comes to the wisdom from God. At this point, we might be, our minds might go back to Proverbs where there's two types of people contrasted. There's the fool and there's the wise. You could say that the worldly and those who are spiritual, those who don't have the Holy Spirit, and those who do. And James talking and he says, if, if anybody lacks wisdom, let him ask and God will give. It's more a case of wisdom for, for walking in a godly way rather than wisdom for making decisions and guidance. Naturally speaking, those outside of Christ haven't seen or heard or imagined what God has prepared for those who love him in verse 9. But that's where we often leave that verse. No ear has heard, no eye has seen what God has prepared for those who love him. But Paul continues, but it was to us that God revealed these things by his spirit. For a spirit searches out everything and shows us God's deep secrets. God has revealed these things to us if we have the Spirit, if we've trusted in Christ. Not only that plan of God, which was revealed through Paul's ministry, but also more generally, we have the wisdom of God if we have the Spirit of God within. And we have received God's spirit, not the world's spirit. So we can know the wonderful things God has freely given us. And when we tell you these things, we do not use words that come from human wisdom. Instead, we speak words given to us by the spirit, using the spirit's words to explain spiritual truths. There's worldly wisdom and spiritual wisdom, godly wisdom. And those who are believers, those who have trusted in Christ, those who are born again by the Holy Spirit have godly wisdom. And yet those who are of the world, who don't have the Spirit, who don't have this and can't understand the things of God. If we are in Christ, we have a wisdom that we didn't have before. But people who aren't spiritual can't receive. When Paul says people who aren't spiritual, he doesn't mean that people who have you know, they don't have a spiritual sense in their heads. It's, there's a lot of people say, well, I'm spiritual, but not religious these days. I mean, everybody is spiritual. Everybody has a spirit. And people follow different kinds of spirituality. He's not saying that. But what he's, what he's in context, he means is those who don't have the Holy Spirit. But people who aren't spiritual can't receive these truths from God's spirit. It all sounds foolish to them, and they can't understand it. For only those who are spiritual can understand what the Spirit means. Only those who have the Holy Spirit 
in their hearts can understand what the Holy Spirit means. This is a, a very significant truth. And the application of this truth, the significance of this truth, that people who aren't spiritual can't receive these truths from God's Spirit, is a major truth which is actually used to make a not quite as major a point. But we could talk so much on, on this bombshell of a truth that those who aren't spiritual can't understand or receive the things of God. People who, who we try and share the gospel with, on, on the one hand, we want them to understand, but on the other hand, we have to recognize, well, if they haven't got the spirit, they can't understand what I'm saying. They can't understand the things that I'm feeling. They can't understand my relationship with the Lord. In chapter 3 of John's Gospel, when Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, he says, I tell you the truth, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Again, he says a few verses later, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Being born naturally, the waters break, but and then being born again by the Spirit. If you ever find yourself sharing the gospel with someone and, and they get it, the Holy Spirit's working in their hearts and they really get it. You can sense that this is different. No, most people don't, aren't like this. There's something happening here. They can understand, but it's not themselves that's understanding naturally. It's the Holy Spirit that's helping them understand. And yet with other people, it's like you're speaking a foreign language. You read a bit of the Bible and it's like you're reading something from... Uh, it's Greek to them. They don't understand. We can, we can understand the truths. The words to us convey truths that we understand, but the words to them, they don't get the truths that are behind the words. They just stare blankly and end up saying something that just shows that they just haven't really got it. They can understand the basic morality of God. Everybody's got the, the, the Holy, the Holy Spirit has put the, the sense of understanding God's law in their hearts and in their minds, Romans 2.15 says. But they can't understand the deeper truths of God unless they have the Spirit within. And so if, if it's family, if it's friends, or if it's others, and they just don't get you, that's okay. Don't keep pushing because they won't unless they have the Spirit. It's okay. It's not about you. They just don't understand. They haven't got the Spirit. Or at least, they haven't got the Spirit yet. We were once in their position. We didn't understand. And we certainly shouldn't look down on them. And we shouldn't get frustrated with them. We should keep on sharing the Gospel, witnessing the Gospel to them, as the opportunity arises, Psalm 119 says, 
the teaching of your word gives light so even the simple can understand. God's word brings light into the darkness. It brings light into our hearts that were dark. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they haven't heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. So God's word, it brings life to some. It creates a new heart by the work of the Holy Spirit. And yet for others, it's like speaking a foreign language. They don't understand. So we keep praying, we keep sharing, we keep hoping that one day the penny will drop, that the seed will fall on good soil. But as believers, we ought to continue to walk in the Spirit and not in worldliness. As Paul goes on in his later chapters in 1 Corinthians, speaking to a troubled church, a church which is struggling with so many worldly ways of thinking, so many worldly behaviors, even behaviors that are worse than in the world. At one point he says, and he encourages them to do what is right, to think what is right, instead of following the ways of the world. The point that Paul is driving towards is not just that there's a clear distinction between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. He's making this clear in order to then deal with the problem of immaturity in the church. At the start of the next chapter, he says, Dear brothers and sisters, when I was with you, I couldn't talk to you as I would to spiritual people. I had to talk as though you belonged to this world or as though you were infants in Christ. I had to feed you with milk, not solid food, because you weren't ready for anything stronger. And so you still aren't ready, for you're still controlled by your sinful nature. You're jealous of one another and quarrel with one another, each other. Doesn't that prove you're controlled by your sinful nature? Aren't you living like people of the world? He wants to get them to not live according to worldly wisdom but according to godly wisdom, not to live according to the old sinful nature, but according to the spirit. He even has to address the question of, of those who question his authority. Who is Paul? Why should we listen to him anyway? As one writer notes, the Corinthians felt that they had the right to judge Paul and his message and were evaluating him by the same criteria by which popular speakers and teachers were judged. And Paul disputed this way of approaching him. He asserts that no one can tell God what to do. For who can know the Lord's thoughts? Who, who knows enough to teach him? And in the same way, the one who has the mind of Christ, therefore similarly can't be judged by those who don't operate in the mind of Christ or who aren't walking in the Spirit. Those who are spiritual can evaluate all things, but they themselves cannot be evaluated by others. Paul is effectively saying that 
those who are spiritually immature in the church are in no position to criticize his ministry. If they don't operate in the spirit, the whole, in the, walk in the Holy Spirit, if they haven't got the wisdom of the spirit, the wisdom of God, if they're operating at a worldly level, well, worldly folk don't understand the things of the spirit of God. And therefore, as Christians who are walking in a worldly way, they're not in a position to really evaluate and criticize Paul. Because we have the mind of Christ, he said. Let me use a medical illustration. Did you know that our brains aren't fully developed until we're about 25 years old? Different parts of the brain develop at different rates. And the part of the brain behind the forehead called the prefrontal cortex is one of the last parts to mature. And this area is responsible for skills in planning, prioritizing, and making good decisions. As one medical university summarizes, it doesn't matter how smart teenagers are or how well they've scored in their exams, good judgment isn't something they can excel in, at least not yet. The rational part of a teenager's brain isn't fully developed and won't be until they're aged about 25 or so. In fact, research, recent research has found that adult and teen brains work differently. Adults think with the prefrontal cortex, the brain's rational part, and this is the part of the brain that responds to situations with good judgment and an awareness of long-term consequences. But teens process information with the amygdala, and that's the emotional part of the brain. In other words, it doesn't matter how smart teenagers are or think they are, Although they can learn lots of facts, they're simply not as able to make good decisions as those who are in their mid-twenties or later. They're operating with their amygdala to make decisions, not their prefrontal cortex. I challenge you, if you're really trying to convince your teenagers sometimes that they ought to do what, you're, what you say, say, listen, hold on, your brain isn't fully developed yet to understand. <laughs> But mine is, so I don't know, maybe that wouldn't go down too well. <laughs> but but the, the fact is that just in the same way that young people and older folk operate with different parts of their brains in making decisions, so too at a spiritual level, people operate either at a worldly level or according to the Holy Spirit. And Paul is encouraging the believers at Corinth in many ways to walk not in the wisdom of the world, but in the wisdom of God. Not in the wisdom of the old sinful nature, but with their mind, their noose, as the original is, which is still a word used in English today. A word which says more about having good sense. You find it even in the newspaper, as I did a few times recently. They will to operate from this godly mindset, from this godly wisdom. Paul sometimes talks about, you know, um, 
like in Romans 8, setting our minds on the things of the spirit versus the things of the flesh. But that's a different word. That's probably better translated, our thinking. But what he speaks of in terms of this, that word here, we have the mind of Christ, we have the noose of Christ, has more of a connotation of we have the spirit of Christ. We have the ability to think along the same lines as the spirit because we have the spirit. Paul uses this word in a couple of significant places. In Romans 1, after going through all of how humanity has fallen in, in various different ways, he's getting towards the end of the chapter. And he says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind, a debasedness, to do what ought not to be done. That's part of our fallen nature, to have a fallen mindset. And yet, for the believer, we are able to not operate just in that. We, we have a renewed mindset. We have a renewedness. And we can delight in the things of God. At the end of Romans chapter 7, Paul says, So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, with my noose, but with my flesh I serve, with my sinful nature I serve the law of sin. When I'm walking in the old sinful nature, I end up sinning, but I'm, when I'm walking in my new nature, I end up serving the law of God. That's why he says in Romans 12 to, to not be conformed to this age, but be transformed, be sanctified by the renewal of your mind, your newness, so that you may approve what is the good and well-pleasing and perfect will of God. Having a renewed mind enables you to serve God the way we ought to. It's not about academics and learning it's not about reading up more and being able to have a, a more intellectual mind, a more academic mind. We need to learn. We need to, to read. But what Paul is saying is what you need more than that is you need a renewed heart, a renewed mindset. Paul is saying be sanctified by walking more in your renewed mind than in the old nature. Put on the new person in Christ. Cast off the old nature. As one old theologian wrote, be transformed by the reception of a new mind. So Paul has set the stage here and he's prepared the ground for tackling many issues that need sorted out in the church in Corinth. And he'll deal with many things later on. But instead of simply telling them what to do, bossing them in a moralistic way, he shows that there's a Christ-like way to walk and live and think and a worldly way. And he's getting them to not live in a worldly way, but to think in a Christ-like way. Anything that is not of Christ ends up taking us down a worldly way. Anything that we are proud of, anything that we cherish which is not of Christ 
ends up leading us into a sinful way of living. Pride in anything other than the cross, boasting in anything other than Christ will lead us astray. And we need to be on our guard and not take pride in anything else other than him. He is our life. He is our strength. He is our joy. He is our wisdom. He is the one who we ought to boast about. As John the Baptist says, he must increase, I must decrease. When people look at us, they ought to see more of Christ. When people give glory to us, we ought to not keep it because of the things that God does in and through us, each one of us. But we ought to give the glory up to him. We ought to take, not to take pride in ourselves, even the things God has done in and through us. But we ought to boast only in the Lord. And the more we focus on the Lord, the more we walk in the wisdom that comes from God, the more we will walk in the power of God, and the more we will give him glory. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we can come to you and confess our sin, confess the things that we have been proud about in ourselves. Lord, we thank you we can come to you and humble ourselves and know that we are forgiven in Christ. And we thank you that, that you not only forgive us, Lord, you give us the privilege of being able to do the things of Christ, the things of God. You give us the privilege of being able to, to be involved in the Holy Spirit working through us. Lord, we are vessels. Help us to be filled with the Spirit, giving you glory. And help us, Lord, to delight in the Spirit, to delight in Christ, to delight in the things of God. Forgive us, Lord, when we haven't. Help us, Lord, to, to walk more in that new nature. Help us to delight more in the wisdom of God than the ways of the world. In Jesus' name, amen.